0: or expanding the community in the suburbs, Ironmark builds quality projects for discerning clients. Ironmark's foundation is built on a culture of collaboration with clients and projects that stand the test of time. Talk to Ironmark's award-winning team about your next construction project today. Go to ironmarkbuildingco.com. In this week's episode, FNC reporter J.D. Duggan talks to Dean devalis, founder and owner of DJR Architecture. DeVolos started DJR in the mid-1980s and has since been involved in many community-oriented and affordable housing developments. In this interview, DeVolos talks about the rapid changes coming in real estate development related to affordable housing and community ownership.
1: All right. Hey, we have uh, Dean DeVolos, owner and founder of DJR Architecture, which helps with development and has a long history of helping to create affordable housing throughout the Twin Cities. Um, I've had a lot of good conversations with Dean in the past. So, uh, hey, Dean, thanks for being here.
2: Judy, thank you. And uh, I'm welcome. Excited to be on your show. So much appreciated.
1: Yeah, awesome. Um, so first, um, you know, I want to hear your thoughts on a host of various kind of unrelated things. But first, can you just tell me a little bit about your recent work? Um, what projects has your company been doing lately?
2: So it's uh, it, it crosses a lot of uh, domains and a lot of communities. Uh, probably the latest adventure working on has been modular housing. That's yeah. been a big push because housing, obviously is an elemental right, as you know, for for citizens around the world, but its cost has been accelerating year after year. So we kept trying to find new ways to make it affordable, experimenting with micro units, uh, panelized construction, other methodologies to get the, to get there and try to get that affordability down lately we've been working on modular construction because especially in this environment of labor shortages and material disruptions it has started to prove itself very effective and managing costs so that's been one effort we've been working we have several projects actually built and occupied that are modular uh one of the largest in cities overall they actually worked out Uh, very well in that process we've also been working with ideas of community development uh, with the concept of can we change the real estate market to allow communities to actually have shares in the development Mm -hmm. and so we've been looking at send up a series of what we call reparation sites with the idea that shares of the development would be sold to the community. And the example I give you is the Green Bay Packers, which the community owns a team, you know, plus they have a good team on top of it. So it makes it a little more desirable. (laughs) Hopefully the same could be of real estate development. But the idea is that the community can actually share, buy into it, and it may be based on income. It may be based on geographic so that People have never experienced real estate before can actually have opportunities of having the appreciation the depreciation and experiencing intergenerational wealth that comes with it mm-hmm. and that's we're developing and starting to put that uh together on that and we have see a wide variety of housing projects we're working with the upper harbor with uh uh, Jamel Ford right now with Mobilized Design. We have to work on a series of projects now in Denver, so I expand uh, beyond the area Projects here, both high-end luxury, all the way down to thirty percent adjusted median income in the whole gamut. Uh, on that, some of it's mixed use, some of it's our master plans, and that. Uh, so it's actually a pretty exciting time because we're seeing a lot of adventures happen simultaneously that are starting to get the issues of equity, community involvement, affordability, opportunity, quality design, participation, and all the other aspects. So we're starting to see a rapid evolution in our industry, a rapid evolution of housing types and a rapid evolution of more opportunity. So every day I'm going to be truthful if it was an adventure, some good, some bad, sure. but the progress. Is being made, and that's what the good news is. Uh, even though it seems incredibly incremental to me and painful, it's actually occurring in terms of how we're starting to change the marketplace, the accessibility to it, and the ability to start influencing urban design, urban uh, environments. So it's it's. I think it'll be a big deal because if we can all get it right, it really will change how development goes forward in the future in the Twin Cities and the nation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you about about uh, affordable, de- affordable housing. Um, you know, you have kind of a unique perspective being very uh, community oriented, but still, you know, working from that side of, um, you know, you're an architect, you work with developers, things like that. What do you think are um, some of the roadblocks for creating more affordable housing, maybe specifically in the metro? Um, and what efforts seem to be working right now? So...
2: There's a ton, unfortunately, that could be simply changed by legislation and reallocation. So I'll talk about the big one, which doesn't seem to get enough airtime. Cities, in order to try to keep their property rates down, have attempted to shift the cost of new development from the city itself and potential homeowners to the developers. And if you think of all the fees that go into putting up the development, sewer access charge, water access charge, park dedication fees, uh, you pay the full cost of consultant. For example, if you do increment financing, the developer pays all traffic studies and so uh, so forth. So that's one whole basket of fees, and those could add up to ten. Thousand, fifteen thousand, up to twenty thousand per unit, just in fees. It doesn't uh, contribute to bricks or mortar or anything else. It's just fees. Mm-hmm. So that's a built-in cost, almost like almost like a hidden tax. Essentially, saying anyone that comes new to my city, you're going to pay the cost of your development, and I'm not going to make the existing residents share that burden. So that mm-hmm. really affects affordability. Then the other is zoning. Uh, zoning can be very insidious, insidious, as you know, because it can basically zone out certain types of people, certain classes, certain cultures, certain races. And by doing a lot of either high parking requirements, because you know every parking stall costs money. If it's enclosed, it's twenty-five to thirty-five thousand stall. If it's surface, up to five thousand or by very low density requirements, or by minimum lot size, or by minimum unit size. So zoning can be a very uh, critical issue. And zoning is often used as a weapon by communities that don't feel that they want affordable housing to prevent it, because they'll never go after the project directly. It'll only be the conversation, they overburn our schools and create too much traffic, too tall, too big, to so forth. And so, zoning is really an issue. Those two, fortunately, can be changed by legislation, by city's attitude, by process. There could be a relaxation of the fees, for example, by the more affordable housing, the more the fees come down. So, that could be a very much tool used in the basis. Same with zoning the higher the affordability, the more flexible would may be given on the zoning. Uh, potentially. So those two have flexibility on that. The other one, which unfortunately is the issue of the day, is the rapid inflation that's occurring, both in labor rates and both in material costs. And that's running in our industry at 10% a year, which is a tremendous rate. Steel just spiked. So that's, I just had a meeting before about the issues of how to deal with that, and how to deal with the price increases that come with it. Lumber you know, has been behaving more like an oil commodity, up and down, and trying to price it. the labor shortage is very apparent. And that is put tremendous pressure on it. And then we have the backdrop of rise in interest rates. You're starting to see a major pressure occurring on the affordability of housing, and it's not just affecting. The 30% MI, which means adjusted median income, the heavily subsidized, it's affecting six per, the 60% heavily. It's affecting the market
0: rate. Mm-hmm.
2: So that's another issue that's not just affecting affordability, but affecting uh, the whole housing market in general, which puts more pressure on because less units get built, thus the, in- the existing inventory gets much more expensive. Mm-hmm. So that's another factor. Another one, which I would say is a self-inflicted injury, is the St. Paul rent control, which has really been proven to be disastrous. Because what it did was freeze all new development in St. Paul and just freeze the creation of new housing. And you probably have read and you mentioned an article the the lack of new development in St. Paul. The building permits, especially residential, show down considerably. Now, normally more housing creates more opportunity, and there's rules about putting some affordable with the new construction. And so, like, example, the Lexington, which is a project we're working on with Bob Lux, which is going to be 192 units, the major, majority of them affordable. That rent control uh, charter amendment chased the developer away. Mm-hmm. Thus, the project went away. Thus, 100 plus units of affordable housing went away. So those can be very dangerous. I know Minneapolis has not enacted one yet. The Charter Amendment strictly said they were going to study it, but it comes with the same peril. You have to be very intelligent how those get pulled together.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: So there's a lot of barriers and there's been some money put in through the ARPA, which is American Rescue Plan Allocation, which is some of it's gone to housing, but that's a one-time event. Mm
3: -hmm. So
2: unfortunately, we'll have a little blip up in the uh, amount of financial aid but then that's going to get exhausted and we'll be back to where we were worse off with inflation so the, unfortunately there's a lot of barriers that have been created but the good side good side is there's a lot of solutions that could be put in place to help solve this
1: yeah do you see any um cities doing it right right now you see, yeah, we'll, we'll use Minneapolis for example
2: uh, because they they took a bold plan—the 2040 plan of upzoning and increasing bonuses for affordable housing and and mandating affordable housing in larger projects actually has helped get at it because Minneapolis gives you bonuses if you provide affordable housing and other factors. So I have to give credit. Because the zoning allows more housing units to be built, because we are definitely in an inventory question, regardless of income range, uh, on that. And that's had an effect on there. The bonuses have been helpful and the mandatory because it's being built in instead of trying to subsidize, because there's not enough government money to go around. It's just we don't have a real strong housing policy in this country. And mm-hmm. like Singapore, for example, where the government subsidized 67% of the housing, we do not. Mm-hmm. So they've built into their zoning ordinance incentives for the private market to provide affordability. So the more housing gets built, the more affordable units start going in place because if you build so many affordable, uh, market rate units, you have to build a percentage of affordable units. So what Minneapolis did, they tacked it on three fronts. They adjusted the density. They eliminated the parking. And parking is a real devil of a cost because you don't make money on parking, especially if it's structured. You end up having to subsidize it through rents. So they upped the density they reduce the parking or eliminate the parking and they increase the incentives. So you're sort of getting it at three points to make this feasible. So if you actually take a project in Minneapolis, the ones I've done modular, even some of the stick projects, we can achieve 60% adjusted median income just by building it, using no parking, three-story building, no elevators, efficient design, efficient construction methodologies. So that way you can start achieving those numbers without subsidies that you would get through the various government programs to start creating new construction, naturally afford- affordable housing.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So uh, that has gone a long ways in sort of model. Unfortunately, very few surrounding suburbs have adapted it comprehensively. Like Edina has an affordable housing requirement, but they have relaxer zoning and mm-hmm. have relaxed relaxer parking. So it's great. I have to do units, but gee, I'm still under onus of heavy parking. I'm still limited by the amount of units I can build. So we've only served one third of the problem. Mm-hmm. So that makes it tough to get at. So a lot of stuff has to go hand in hand. And of course, you know, the fees I've seen a few cities give some breaks on it, but not a lot. They tend to hang on to those overcharges of fees judiciously, they, they don't want to give it up, but that needs to be looked at as a sliding scale also to really help in that issue and give relief. See, Minneapolis has, and I cannot remember the name of the program. If you commit to creating and to keep your units at a level of affordability, you get a considerable break on your property taxes. Sure. And that's and that is a natural. And so it's built in there. So there's a lot of levers and tools in combination, but to work where other cities have pieces of the puzzle, but not enough of the puzzle to really help you get to affordable basis right. on your project without subsidy.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Uh, I, I don't want to only, you know, spend time talking about this. So I, I want to ask you about um the So you've expressed interest in the development of an urban farm at the Roof Depot site in East Phillips. You know That's been a major source of conflict, pretty hyper-local conflict. Um, It seems now the city is going to demolish the Roof Depot building to build a public works. Um, That that kind of seems to be the trajectory that's happening right now after the mayor's veto. Um, Do you think this idea about an urban farm sort of property that includes affordable housing, things like that, do you think that's viable in other parts of the neighborhood or other parts of the metro?
2: Let me correct you on the first part of the statement. Okay. Not yet. The mayor's veto is a technical veto, meaning if we agree to certain terms, we'll approve it. And Mm -hmm. there's a meeting with uh, 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 Jason, Emily, and Johnson Mm -hmm. uh, with the mayor to negotiate this thing. With so the council worst. members
1: Jason Chavez, and Malikowski yep. and Andrew Johnson? Yep.
2: yep. Yes. Yes. So this thing is very much a lie, and the okay. reason why we the veto override the community wanted to prove, ask Jason, prove yourself, stand up to the mayor. You know, so we didn't do the override, but there is a negotiation ongoing on this thing, sure. and we're also entering the mediation mm-hmm. with the city because we've uh, out dealing with on the legal front. So it's a project is very viable.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Why is it important? Uh, for a bunch of reasons. If you take the issues, of East Phillips neighborhood, it's one of the poorest neighborhoods in the city, and one of the most heavily polluted. So they're actually dealing with both the issues and they've had a high impact. The city's plan, unfortunately, exasperates that makes it worse in terms of the crane service service, because they're not processing water, that'd be the easy part, because that's a clean industry, relatively clean. It's really a service yard of trucks and storage and materials and things like that. And then obviously turning on the building releases arsenic and a whole bunch of issues that come with that. And then the third part is a loss of future economic activity. Mm-hmm. You lose the idea of community ownership. Mm-hmm. You lose the idea of the green jobs. You lose the idea of, this, uh, of uh, all the spin-off jobs that could, uh, can occur from. So it's, it's a heavy loss that the community would pay for. It's viable because of the interests of all these groups that have come to us, which is the East Phillips Institute. That's the name of the group that's really spearheading the uh, project and want to be part of it. This is not just a local effort. The Sierra Club, Maine 350, uh, the governor called. We met with the governor, uh, all the Minneapolis representatives, both House and Senate. Uh, have said this is important because of what it represents, Uh, various unions, uh, a whole host of people, because they see this not just for the urban agriculture, agriculture as part of the food issue and food scarcity issue, which is one component, but they see the aspects of what it could bring in terms of the function of the community ownership with the idea that we'd set up three tiers of ownership, Uh, lowest tier would be the community ownership. When I say lowest tier, that may be the most heavily subsidized community on the building. Then the middle tier would be tenants of the building. And then the upper tier would be outside investors. But the idea is that it's an asset that's controlled by the community, managed by nonprofit board, that starts giving uh, people ownership in real estate. It starts changing the model a little bit in which right now real estate tends to be an isolated, generally white man's profession. There's some exemptions to it, but it's not really widely held outside of people that may own single-family homes. This starts to give a much broader base. So that's a key piece. So there's an importance in the project, both in terms of the functions, because it's a green zone, but also in terms of how it may change how real estate's looked at especially on publicly held sites. Mm -hmm. And some of the uh, counselors at Minneapolis have said, if you get this right, and I'll use the word when we get it right, (laughs) we want to use this to guide Lake and Nicola, the Kmart site redevelopment. We want to use this model to look at how we can look at future phases of the Upper Harbor Minneapolis. We want to look at this, how we can look at the redevelopment of the Herc site, the garbage burner site in Minneapolis. And so there's a lot of eyes studying this thing, both. Uh, locally and nationally so it's a big deal because it could really pave a new way of looking at how real estate development can become a community effort not only just a private effort so there's a lot at stake on this but fortunately we're still alive in the battle we're in negotiations
1: i can't tell you how the story is going to end but the story is still being written as we speak sure sure Sure. Thanks for that correction. It's also in the middle of a very residential area, right? It's people's homes it, and families right in, right around that whole it, block.
2: It's the wrong answer. And unfortunately, it was an answer that was established many years ago by city staff mm-hmm. that wanted to free up a site in northeast Minneapolis where existing existing uh, water maintenance yard is to open that up for redevelopment. Right. So the idea is they'd move it to Phillips, you know, heavily impacted neighborhood to open up the site of North Minneapolis for redevelopment. It's like, wrong answer. You sure. can't do that. And it would increase in our pollution, because there's a law called the Clark-Berglin law, which is written, that's would passed by the legislature that apply this neighborhood, which addresses cumulative pollution. They can't just look at a single source, you have to look at the cumulative sources and then make your judgment on that, that you cannot add any more impactful industries or functions in this neighborhood. So, there's a lot of issues, upstanding that law and the development and so forth. So, yeah, it's it's the wrong answer. It's just that you tend to have, you know, they call it environmental, you know, you've heard the term, environmental racism. This is a very high example of it, where you tend to put noxious uses in the neighbor's neighborhood that has the least public representation or least public power. He's Phillips is one of those neighborhoods. Right. They're in that situation and they're repeating that negative history and over and over again. So hopefully we can start reversing it, especially on top of the factor that the city designated that area as part of the green zone initiative. So this goes opposite to that designation.
1: Sure. Thanks for that correction too. Um, Maybe oh, don't worry. Yeah, maybe you could um, speak to some of that community ownership. I'm seeing some of those efforts on Lake Street right now. I recently wrote an article at 3030 Nicollet, which is you know right off Lake Street too, about creating like commercial condos in an apartment building. Do you see other efforts happening around the city or state for kind of bringing the community into these real estate ventures?
2: Yeah, it's just beginning, and Lake Street was sort of the realizing that we can't plow on the same model. Mm -hmm. The beauty of the Roof Depot building, that building's 230,000 square feet. So it's a much more major impactful structure. And it's a structure that could generate up to a thousand jobs when it's fully developed uh, with the various uses of programmed within it. So the thought is that if we can get enough Subsidy and subsidy maybe from our probably the tenants, subsidy maybe from the outside and so forth. We can underwrite the shares for the community. So let's say example that the buy into this costs ten dollars a share, just to pull a number. So our hope is that maybe for the community community, you may have to establish income restrictions, like we do with housing, using the same AMI rules, that instead of a community member. With land would campaign ten dollars a share, they would pay five dollars a share mm-hmm. and then the thought is tenants of the building rewarded, they may pay eight or seven fifty a share versus ten, and then the outside and in, outside investors would pay what I call market value at ten dollars a share
3: mm-hmm.
2: with the idea that those benefits to real estate, which we all know about. Depreciation, which really reduces the tax burden; appreciation, which creates future wealth, Mm -hmm. and then I'll see distribution of income based on cash flow of the building become an element that stays with the community year after year. And so the benefits real estate become further spread Mm -hmm. uh, to more people. You know, right now we think in terms of direct subsidies to people, direct. Uh, payments, direct issues that fall into it, this becomes a much more of an indirect subsidy that can go on for many years and yeah. thus have a much, because then you use natural market forces appreciation to build wealth as opposed to give people money and hope it lasts long enough. So it's our change of model that the dollars used to subsidize this will have a much longer effect than a one time check. For one-time payment. So it, it really opens up. And the fact that the asset stays in the community guarantees it stays in the community. Unfortunately, I've witnessed enough tragic examples of for-profit and non-profit developers losing the asset because they cross-collateralized as a bank and thus everything was taken back. When you have diverse ownership, it protects the asset. That's why you've never heard comments of Why the Green Bay Packers will never move out of Green Bay, even though it's not the greatest football market in the world, because in terms of viewer size or scale, because it's locked in by this diverse holding of ownership. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: So the same model occurs here that an asset of 230,000 square feet of readily marketable warehouse, agriculture, community space is protected and not held vulnerable to a purely nonprofit owner or a for-profit owner who may make a mistake, not at their fault, and the building could be lost to the bank or some mm-hmm. other source. So it provides a greater degree of permanency for the asset also. So it really covers a lot of fronts that mm-hmm. can really be helpful
3: Yeah, on yeah. that.
2: So yeah. it's exciting. And now we're working on how the Lake and it could be written to apply for a larger diversity of developers because how you set those sites up really start creating the future opportunities that could occur on it yeah cool
3: so um, i could go on i could go on
2: longer with ideas but i want to be respectful of your time and the questions <laughs> you're asking but there's a lot to it and that's why this is exciting because you, you can see it starting to happen as you mentioned and right I think this is good for the community and for the country as a whole
1: yeah cool um, you know we you and i the last time we Talked. It was about a, a development in East Phillips that was funded by an East African woman, uh, or she was the investor in the project. Uh, I think a Somali woman. Um, yeah. You had told me you said something to me about like we're in the awakening of the next generation of American investors regarding the East African community. Um, I thought that was a really interesting point, and I could you speak to that a little bit?
2: It's it's more, and every day it gets more dramatic than you think. And what's occurring as these wave of immigrants have come over and they start learning the American system and the American capitalism, which they tend to thrive in, um, they, it's sort of capitalism gives a freedom of thought and structure that they've never had. The advantage of existing country, countries, their home countries, they're starting to accumulate wealth they're starting to accumulate savvy they're starting to accumulate knowledge and what's starting to happen is and this is very true for any type of reinvestment everyone always looks for the messiah that comes from the outside like google or amazon and i say we got to bring this star player in When reality the genius and talent and investment actually lies within the community that's actually your strongest asset to
3: untap and to work. And so what I'm seeing in these, in these diverse communities,
2: yeah, they, they're beginning to invest in their communities and they don't have the fear of the community or the prejudice of the community because they understand the community that they're in. And so these African communities are pulling in money and looking at real estate, and I get calls all the time. Can you help me with this project? Can you put this together? Mm-hmm. The Roof Depot building, in which we're raising cat- investors for, uh, uh, members of these kind of community came forward to me and said, we want to be part of this. We're willing to raise money and invest in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they said, oh, I can benefit the community. We want to be part of this dream. So you started seeing these various uh, cultures uh, between the Latinx community, the Native American communities, African community, organizing dollars, organizing investments. Some are two-unit buildings, some are five-unit buildings, some are three-units, some are larger, like the one at Twenty Six and Nicollet, that they're starting to invest in our communities and start driving the changeover that everyone was hoping for would come from some outside sources actually being generated internally within the community and the fact that minneapolis has some flexibility in its zoning ordinance is allowing them to start performing the redevelopments of their neighborhoods lake street will be rebuilt by the community and that's what's beginning if you look at those are generally community-based or ethically owned and that's the same is happening so that's a secret sauce that most people don't realize yet That is going to emerge, and I wish I could tell you about the efforts on the north side that we've begun, which is going to be stunning in its own right. But I got to be, we're not quite ready for prime time yet, but it's there. And it's it's not just uh, within the Phillips neighborhood, which is a prime example, but starting to occur in other communities also. So there's a ton of potential that lies within the inner cities that's just being realized that I think will carry the cities very far into the future.
1: Yeah. Cool. That is awesome. Um, yeah. Whenever that's ready for prime time, you know, feel free to reach out. <laughs> okay, uh, Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, and then kind of one of the last things I wanted to ask about was um sustainable development. Uh, you know, you've already talked a bit about um, sustainability, having, you know, the green zone in, East Phillips, what, what efforts are you seeing around sustainable development, um, energy efficient homes? When do you think we're at a time where we need to start retrofitting old homes to be more energy efficient? Are you seeing these efforts happening in mass for, for new homes? What, what, are you, what are you seeing around all of that?
2: You're seeing, as I gonna call some historical efforts, and I can call some new efforts because there's really two classes. The energy efficiency whole homes really started during the first energy crisis in the 70s and mm-hmm. afterwards. And then and there were some mistakes made, as you know, because they super vapor-buried houses and they rotted from the inside and all that. But that was the beginning of the retrofit. And once you figure out how to make grids and matures, you got past that. So generally, building standards and building codes have been getting more and more energy efficient. And the R value requirements have been increasing. So, our buildings are improving by code, and buildings are being retrofitted for the dollars. So, that's one area. But the other area that's just beginning is energy generation, meaning creating the energy to green energy to supply it. And, like the roof depot at has a 230,000 square foot roof, which would supply the neighborhood, uh, local solar grids, local power grids, local windmill. You're starting to see the element of not just preserving energy, but now generating energy through a lot of technological advances, which are coming faster and faster every day. You read the one about creating water out of, uh, humidity that, uh, I was that Amazon, a remember Which company invested in that? Basically, it's a dehumidifier, so a water source. You learn about see Solar speaks for itself in terms of energy panels and so forth. There's production, wind production through what they call vertical wind turbines mm-hmm. is occurring. All these other elements are starting to begin. So, what is going to start to happen is the U.S. used to have major power plants. In which it would be fed out to the grid so you'd have like single point of power production out so the approach that is starting to become is what i call resilient grids in which there's multiple sources of power being fed into the grids so not just mm-hmm. one major producer could go down because you know about electricity as it travels through lines you lose a lot of electricity to the air so to speak it mm-hmm. the, the power declines over distance mm-hmm. so if you start creating multiple vortices of energy creation your fishing goes up because it's closer to the source of usage it's closer home and it's resilient that if one part of the grid fails whatever other parts can pick it up because there's multiple production points mm-hmm. that's where it's darn it because I think we got a pretty good handle on efficiency materials and retrofitting of buildings and the logic of insulation and green energy but now we're looking at energy production a greener production of materials, a greener production of construction, we're starting to focus in on that area. And that's what I call the new generation versus the historic, when it was the retrofitting, but now it's how we produce our products, how we distribute them, and how we actually build our structures to make them much greener. Yeah. And, then, you know, modular is one example of that, because it fits the construction in warehouse and the weight, construction weight's knocked down by 50%. As we chose aggregated transportation cost drop, whether you don't do temporary, so there's a lot of factors. And that's just changing construction methodology, mm-hmm. for an example. So that's really where I think the next wave is going to occur in the greening of our society yeah. on that on that basis.
1: Yeah. I think those are derm systems are are part of that. It's with the What's that? Ener- a derms system d-e-r-m-s right yep um northfield is looking at that right now there's a bill going through the legislature related to trying to make something like that happen there Um,
2: Correct. and the the key that is you're seeing in this town and it goes back to investment that's a one-time investment by the state that will pay dividends over decades right and that's what the beauty of this is as opposed to uh subsidizing people's seat which you need But if we can change the system by one time investment, you change the affordability going forward. So you're absolutely right on that.
1: Yeah. And it ties to kind of what you were saying about community ownership is if it's coming from all these sources, it's kind of a lot safer. Correct. Um, There's
2: a redundancy in the
1: system. Right, right. Uh, Yeah. So... Dean, I really appreciate your perspective. I always enjoy talking to you. Do you have? I don't have any other questions. Anything else you wanted to wanted to add? No,
2: I just appreciate what you're doing. Yeah. But stay tuned because there's so much more yet to come. Uh, yeah. This is a very period of rapid transition, mm-hmm. and more and more is going to occur. That I think I'm going to be truthful. I think five years from now. There's going to be elements of for society you're not going to recognize for the positive yeah. in a lot of areas. And so please keep reporting on these trends because even though there tends to be a negative vibe on urbanism and cities and all that, the opposite is really occurring. It's just been masked by overall issues of unrest, crime, and so forth. But there's a lot that's occurring that's outside the boardroom and that's yeah. what's good about this and that's what's interesting and outside the country clubs and within the community so it's a good thing and i just appreciate you covering these aspects so thank you
1: yeah yeah hey thank you so much um yeah look forward to talking to you again appreciate it thanks right. yep. thanks you. thank you